Welcome to the Context Matters Podcast. I am your host, Cindy Parker. I like to gather around the table with a wide variety of people who have very different life experiences from mine, and we get to talk about God, Bible, theology, and other tangentially related subjects. Your voice is always welcome around this table. You can reach out to me through my Narrative of Place website. On this episode, we are joined once again by Joshua Stamper, who is a transdisciplinary artist and composer, who last week gave us a peek into how faith and art are combined in his life. We also talked about the valuable role that art can have as a teacher, along with helping us experience the presence of God when you allow your attention to be drawn to things by God. Today, I wanted to start the conversation exploring not only the concept of art as teacher, but also Joshua's experience of that. I asked if there was a soundscape that when he heard it for the first time, maybe it was confusing or something he felt he needed to learn more about or at least engage more until it taught him all he needed to know. So lean in and enjoy the conversation. Yeah, I think that in terms of artists that represented maybe some kind of real shift, that would probably be my experience of John Cage. And, you know, John Cage is, well, take the example of his piece, Four Minutes and 33 Seconds, which is probably the most famous of his pieces in that sort of notoriety is directly linked to the controversy that swirled around it. And for those that might not be familiar, it's this piece, the duration of which is four minutes and 33 seconds in three movements. And it's premiere. The pianist comes out on stage and, you know, the music is up on the stand. He opens up the piano lid and sets a timer and then closes the piano lid and sits and nothing is played. And then, you know, clicks the timer, opens the lid, closes it again. <laughs> you know, starts it again. That's the second movement. <laughs> That's the second movement. Exactly. And so it goes all through three movements. And as you might expect, for many, this piece was really derided as this kind of adolescent practical joke from this kind of impertinent child of a composer who just liked wasting people's time <laughs> and money because they paid tickets. And, you know, I, I've written about this piece a little bit and, and I say that it, you know, it's not music is the common refrain, but the complaint behind the complaint is that it's alienating, that the only way in which the piece facilitates any kind of communal experience is that everybody feels on the outside of an inside joke. And that that was my experience too. That's how I, I shared that same impatience with Cage. It just felt pretentious. And But then I came across this other piece called Water Walk, which was premiered on this at this game show in in 1960 called I've Got a Secret. It's a very weird name for a game show, but sounds strange to our ears now. So the the piece was basically this just giant kind of Rube Goldberg kind of invention that he had created. And, you know, he also has a timer, but he's timing specific events like a tea kettle going off, turning a bathtub on and off. And it, I mean, it, it's hard to describe, but I think that just in that one viewing, my view of John Cage and his work completely flipped instantly. And it was instead of seeing this kind of pretentious provocateur, I, I encountered this person who was just so filled with 
wonder and joy in the sheer fact of sound and what happens if you organize all of these sounds that feel disparate and don't feel like they could possibly make any kind of music the organization of those things all of a sudden it becomes this really this experience of wonder and play and it was encountering that piece that not only changed my understanding and appreciation for john cage but of four minutes and 33 seconds that the instantly that shifted from being a piece that was inaccessible to being this kind of wide-eyed invitation to wonder and it not necessarily to the piano because there's no sound emanating from the piano but all of the sounds that are happening around you and so the whole world becomes music which is of course the point he was trying to make and i remember having a conversation with a student years ago and he was saying yeah but you know at its most fundamental music is organized sound and i I said what could be more organized than saying for four minutes and 33 seconds you know this is what we're listening to and so in three movements in three (laughs) movements and it's been reorchestrated for you know all kinds of instruments like all the way up to symphony orchestra which is hilarious um because they all just have their violins and basses and percussion instruments and all that kind of thing and they just set it down and wait and yeah you hear the sounds of people shuffling and candy wrappers and outside cab horns and all the all the rest but that's part of the thing it's like Mm -hmm. listen listen to what's around you pay attention this is worthy of paying attention to so yeah so i think that that was of the pieces of music or just a compositional approach that that really that represents some kind of seismic shift in my understanding and way of thinking about art it would probably be john cage with a close second to andy goldsworthy well no they're tied for sure they're tied i started combining in my head this concept of art as teacher and then thinking about discipling all sorts of people in the church and i wonder if we can consider one aspect of discipleship as seeing and hearing and experiencing god in different way and see i'm already thinking again about those two episodes on the mystics But I wonder if there's a way to disciple an artist as an artist. So what are some of Joshua's thoughts about that? So if we take seriously the idea that God is a particular God, that he moves in particular space and particular time among particular people, that our particular makeup as human beings, if we're taking that idea seriously, that makeup the things that make me me and the things that make you you really paying attention to that that that's the principal theater in which our discipleship and formation is actually worked out so it is in the making of a song of a poem of a dance of a film that we learn something more about who god is and who we are as a consequence that these are places where I come face to face with my own immaturity or impatience or I come face to face with my fears and my, my resistance to what I was describing earlier, which is letting myself be led, letting myself go into the woods with God and letting him show me things without a destination, especially when the stakes feel high, like livelihood. (laughs) 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 You know, 
or things feel more pressing, that there are all kinds of very, very intense formation types of matters that are worked out inside of the context of artistic activity. And so I think that part of what it means for the church to interface with artists well is to recognize that fact that this is part of how God meets artists is in their art. And I think alongside of that, that there is a a commitment to pressing into those spaces, you know, asking the artist, so what did you see? What did you hear? Show me, you know, how were you changed? That kind of relationship between the church and artists, I think is important to cultivate. Yeah. It goes back to consuming art or learning from art. The, you know, if I just don't like it on the first go and become dismissive, then I've missed an opportunity to see a whole segment of who God is. Absolutely. Because I've not asked good enough questions about trying to get at that experience of God, who God being God should always be way beyond our understanding. And so why wouldn't we want other people to chime in on their experience, the part of God that they're seeing and touching and feeling and hearing? For sure. Yeah. And I think I think that that's something that the church really has gained from artists. And part of, I think, why the church writ large, why its understanding of art is it's inadequate to the church's own malnourishment. And I think part of the reason for that is because to interface with art well, part of what that requires is is coming to the art, engaging with it on its own terms, not on your terms. And it's easy to dismiss all kinds of things because it doesn't conform to the way that you might see the world. And if you're coming to art that way, <laughs> your your chances of of you know getting it, quote unquote, are pretty slim. You know, and especially if it moves outside of the sort of the norm. And it is easy to dismiss it as either pretentious or irrelevant or whatever, which again is part of my initial experience of John Cage's music. And I was chastened. When that happened for me, an entire world opened up. And it didn't just change my experience of that piece, four minutes and 33 seconds. It didn't just change my experience of John Cage. It changed my experience of everything, of all of art and my my own. And, you know, I'm coming from some a place that you would think would be sympathetic, you know, the most sympathetic because I'm involved with artistic activity and have been for decades. And even for me, you know, that there was this this point of, of recognition of, wow, the categories that I've been working with are really narrower than they should be. And, you know, when I say it changes my experience of everything, when you come to art on its own terms and not on your terms, it doesn't just expand your ability to enter in with other types of art, but it increases your ability to listen and hear what another person is saying. And so it keeps sort of folding out. And I think ultimately the most important is that it, you know, what you were just speaking to, that it cultivates a, a way of being where we come to God on his terms, not on our own. And, you know, one kind of point of (laughs) <laughs> long-standing worry for me just culturally is that we're I think we're being trained away from modes of listening and engagement we're trying being trained away from this kind of 
idea of coming to art on its own terms or listening carefully to something that you might not understand you know so like you know take music we have all of these streaming platforms you know and there's advantages to that for sure but but one of the things that i i worry about is so this is now becoming a counseling session um sharing you <laughs> sharing sharing with you all of my my personal neuroses. But I do worry about the issue of attention in the way that streaming platforms and not just streaming platforms, just this sort of onslaught of images and onslaught of information, the way that that that's a pretty significant atom bomb to our ability to pay attention to anything. And so, for example, with the streaming platforms and music, as you were kind of alluding to, if something doesn't grab your ear within, you know, 0.5 seconds, then you just move on to something that will, that already conforms to your tastes and already conforms to the way that you understand and, and see the world. And there's so much music that I've experienced through my life where at first blush, my first encounter with it, it didn't just not conform to my taste, but it actually, there was a certain kind of repulsion initially, you know, and it wasn't, it was only because I kept returning to that music that my experience of that music changed over time. And the list of records is, is very, very long. Ornette Coleman, Miles Davis, on and on and on. And so that it's that kind of experience that I really kind of, there's a certain amount of anxiety for me just culturally, like how are we being trained? And, you know, I'm struck by in Luke eight, Jesus says this really, really curious thing. He says, pay attention to how you listen. And that sort of mode of listening, I think, is something we must take seriously, certainly as you know, people of faith, because the stakes of not listening are, are quite high. Yeah. So, People all over the place in different fields have similar worries of you know, people skimming an article, not reading an article, or skimming a book and not reading a book. Or when we talk about music... I remember when I was little, artists would produce an album. And then anytime mm -hmm. I heard a critique about the album, it was all about the story being told over all the different songs mm -hmm. from beginning to end. So recognizing the arc that was in the formation of the album. And yeah. I do not hear that at all anymore with music critique, mm -hmm. because I think everything is a one-off, like grab and go. So again, yeah. kind of speaking to the, we're losing the skill of persistence in yeah. listening. Yeah. And even, yeah, that's a great example. And I mean, I think even the, even the idea of the mixtape, you know, which there's less of, not that there's less tape, but, <laughs> but that, I mean, that whole thing, you know, that, that whole activity that we all did, you know, make, creating mixtapes for friends and for families and for trips and all that kind of thing. The thing that was great about that is, yeah, we're, we're taking it outside of the original, you know, any one song outside of its original context, but it, it but then there's another context that's being provided for it that is fundamentally meaningful, you know, whether that's a relationship or a, an event or, a, or whatever. And, now the context that sort of dominates our, our listening or the curation of those individual songs is something that is wholly unparticular to us. It's just algorithms that are saying, well, you like this, so then you're like, you'll like this, and then you'll like that. 
but it's decontextualized. I, I mean, the, the only context that those decisions are being made on is pr- previous preference. But the chance that you're going to run into something that you hadn't before is a lot lower. And you never know what you're going to like or what you're not going to like. I often, when you and I are talking about art, I think to Walter Brueggemann, he is someone who specializes in the prophets. His writing is polarizing for some communities who just hear his name and they write it off as, you know, they don't want to have anything to do with Walter Brueggemann. But I have really enjoyed a lot of his writing because in focusing on the prophets, I feel like he's focusing on some of the artists in the Bible because the prophets are somewhat obscure and they write in poetry, which can be non-intuitive to understand, especially as a foreigner to that language and that time and that place. And there's so much value that the prophets brought to the Israelite community in holding up a mirror and showing them the reality of of what was going on in somewhat of an unexpected way. And so when I think of Walter Brueggemann and his very famous book from the 70s, The Prophetic Imagination, Mm -hmm. sometimes I think we need our artists in our faith communities to grab hold of that prophetic imagination. The prophetic imagination is not seeing things in like Pharaoh's economy, as Brueggemann would say, but look for it in terms of God's kingdom. But do we have the vision to see what God is wanting us to see about the beauty of his kingdom and what is there? And for some of us, we don't have that imagination. And sometimes I want to look around and ask the artists who are with us, going back to your point, can you tell me what you're seeing? Like, can you bring vision to my eyes in terms of the vision of God's kingdom? So I'd love to hear your response to that in terms of the artist being a prophet for the church. I mean, this is, yeah, they're weighty words, both artist and prophet. And the responsibilities are, of both are, are substantial. You know, because I think it does, as we were talking about earlier, that they're part of what the artist is, the job is, is to sort of exist on the outside of those frameworks and those structures and to, and to say, there's more, there's more, you know, it's not just this. And I, yeah, I mean, I think I'm glad that you use the language of poetry because I, or use that word, because I think there is, it's a way of working with language that that you can't read poetry fast. <laughs> right. You have to you have yeah. to slow down and slow way down to have any hope of understanding what this is about. And I think that that's a lot of the what's involved in any art is helping people by slowing time down, helping people to, you know, that art itself is a, is a snag you know, that like catches on the coat, you know, and and it stops people and sometimes jerks them backwards, but that's a really necessary thing. And I, and you see that you certainly see that with the prophets, you know, that there's all kinds of really urgent things that are being said to their contexts that require stopping and slowing down. The other thing that I'm kind of struck by in terms of what art does is or what's critical about it is it defamiliarizes 
our context to ourselves mm-hmm. that it mm-hmm. that and that's really really necessary to actually understanding our context and to really be able to make sense of it in new ways that are are relevant to our our current moment and our current communities making the familiar unfamiliar and i think that 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 sort of defamiliarization work the work of slowing things down the work of being on the edges and and sort of acting as a kind of cartographer of the edges of the framework that we're operating within i think that's especially critical inside of faith communities particularly any kind of community that has a has an authoritative text at its center you know like torah the bible quran you know in hebrews the the word of god is described as living and active and then but also as sharper than any double-edged sword and well swords are sharp (laughs) and um and they require years of training to wield well and to wield a sword without reckoning with what it is and what it can do and and its weight and its swing and its pivot and the point the blade its sharpness where it's sharper where it's less to not reckon with those things is to really do so at great peril to everybody around you and likely to yourself as well and but i think it's notable that the words living and active precede the metaphor of a sword and underscore the point that the sword is separate from us and that it that the training never really stops and so in contrast in our current context in our faith community context there's an awful lot of stock that's placed on certainty and a sense that because we own a bible that we own the truth that we have it that it's something that can be possessed and so we carry on with our unexamined plans and dreams and desires because we have this we're assured we've assured ourselves of the good luck that the bible in our pockets or in our homes will confer on our dreams and hopes and desires so our relationship to the the sacred text that that is again the hub that all our faith community revolves around it it takes on this kind of fetishistic hue that we treat the bible and then by extension god as a talisman again humility is critical and this is something that i think art really can offer us that it presses the point that our knowledge of god you know the living word the living and active word of god that our knowledge our theology is is limited it always it's always limited and if it's not we're in trouble that even our most sophisticated theologies are unfinished and this is part of what i love about god is that there's always more that you know even with all of eternity on offer we'll never plumb the depths of of who god is and so that sense of pushing pushing towards you know reaching reaching for what you don't know and and doing that as a community i think that's a lot of the ways in which art speaks prophetically we've touched on this a few different times throughout the conversation but just in conclusion, the idea of sitting at a table and reading the Bible with artists, encouraging those who are listening and their extended communities to to build that into their practice. But what what do you have? What do you think we have to gain by by doing that? And not even forcing everyone to become artistic, or you know, which maybe we could all strengthen those muscles. But what is it that we get by hearing the 
polyphonic voices around the table. Ultimately, this this may sound a little simplistic, but I think ultimately what's on offer is a richer, not just understanding of who God is, but experience of who God is. And by extension, a richer understanding and experience of who, you know, one another is. And in that enriched understanding and experiences is communion, greater, you know, intimacy with God, greater intimacy with one another, compassion, grace, forgiveness, love, all of those things. And I I mean, obviously, you know, my particular kind of focus is by virtue of what I do is art, but it's, I want to say this is not just art, that, that it's, it's all of these things, you know, everybody coming to a common table and, and committing to being together and committing to dialogue with each other. I mean, I do think maybe in terms of the particular emphasis of or what art in particular can offer. I am reminded of a excerpt from uh, Wendell Berry's The Responsibility of the Poet, where he says, by its formal integrity, a poem reminds us of the formal integrity of other works, creatures, and structures of the world. And obviously, by poem, he's, you know, you can extend that out to include other art forms. He continues, the the form of a good poem is in a way perhaps not altogether explainable or demonstrable, an analog of the forms of other things. By its form, it alludes to other forms, evokes them, resonates with them, and so becomes a part of the system of analogies or harmonies by which we live. This, I think, is a matter of supreme and mostly unacknowledged importance. So I think part of what Barry's observations describe as the formative power of skillful and and considered artistic activity that chiefly it's the power of naming that you know the sort of christening that it was you know the kind of initial divine mandate is at once a recognition of what a thing is and a commission a drawing out of the essence of a thing that both are imbued and called forth in a single word which is an awesome responsibility, but it, in that naming, the aperture is widened and the lens is focused in our ability to to see God, to see the world, and again, who who we are and what our responsibility is as human beings, as people that are made in God's image, comes into clear relief. And I think artists have a particular; they exist as a sort of particular. That the the term namer that that fits the the charge of the artist well uh, you know that there's because there so much is so much training and resources and time is leveraged leveraged in the direction of paying attention learning how to hear learning how to see slowing down you know and so so for the rest of us you know the church the world our society, I think anything that can help us <laughs> to slow down, to pay attention, I think we would do well to heed. I think our lives depend on it. I'm curious how many of you are artists and relate to what Joshua Stamper has said. Or maybe you are like me and are artist adjacent, and you're learning to see and hear God in new ways because of the artists in your life. Drop me a line and let me know. 
Next week, we are going to branch into technology. How can we read the Bible using technology that is helpful instead of getting in the way? All these conversations this season are possible only because of a stellar team made up of people like the Sion family and Natalie and Doug McGee. They are part of my Patreon team and are the people who financially support this project to keep it viable season after season. If you want to help support this podcast, you have several options. You can share it with friends and family. You can give it a five-star rating on whichever site you listen on. Or you can join the Patreon team. A link for that is in the episode notes. I produced this episode. Luke Bronner of Odd Parliament did the edits and the final mix. And Peter Lordson of Sycamore Sound created the music. It is always so good to be with you, and I look forward to our conversation next week. Until then, be safe and take care of each other, and stay curious about the world around you.